Dan and Omar show and uh, it's the European Super League which you could have I suppose a discussion on it at any point in um, well at any point in the last 10 years I remember reading actually I, I tweeted about this probably about a year ago where uh, I used to collect the you know the match magazine annuals um, and so they had a set in section one of the annuals probably like the year 2000 they had something on a European Super League and what would it look like I, I might share that after after this um on twitter but they basically went okay this is this is what you know this is what's being moved to this is what it could look like so it's kind of a, a talking point that's been around for years and years and years but it's reared its head again for some people or, or is a kind of exciting new development for others um this week uh what's what's going on down what's what's the latest what's the latest proposals that are coming out well yeah i mean uh, we've, we talked about it briefly, I think, quite a while, a little bit ago when we were talking about Project Big Picture as well, weren't we, about everything in the mix and, um, you know, whether all of these discussions have been accelerated because of COVID, because of the big losses. We saw the Deloitte report out today yeah. talking about, well, at one point, like, and I know that Barcelona's financial figures look horrendous, where they've got sort of debt of over a billion euros, if I remember correctly. Um, and and all of that is the backdrop, I, I presume, um, uh, has led of obviously to quite big losses even at the larger clubs, and has led then obviously to those larger clubs being thinking about how can you know, I guess cynically in, individually, but also in some type of collective manner, how are they going to be able to um, plug that hole, um, fill the gap, and um, and try and either recoup those losses or look to be able to find more lucrative um, avenues going forward. And so I think almost in a way, what came as a surprise, I think it was last week, I'm going to have a quick look at the, the statement as well that UEFA, it was on the FIFA website, that FIFA, UEFA, all the various confederations also came up with a sort of joint statement. In a way, I guess, validating that the, the concern that I... It's only been reported in the press really to date. This was almost the first open public statement shot across the bows to a degree, but I presume that is because every because those uh, bodies and entities are pretty worried about what is presumably going on behind the scenes, which is um, discussions about the possibility of um, a Super League. Um, now, depending on how we class European Super League or Super League anyway, some people argue we've already got a Super League to a degree. It, you know, the, the European Cup, as it was pre-92, I think it was, yeah. it was, is a very, very different beast to the multi-layered, what sometimes was, number of um, uh, number of leagues and then knockouts um, and then stages, uh, which effectively guaranteed more games and the best teams playing against each other and the less likelihood of being knocked out against in the first round, i.e. elongating those revenue streams out. But, you know, what UEFA and FIFA and the, the confederations more or less put in place as a, as a, a sort of warning shot was, you know, you clubs, if you're thinking about this, just as I guess the clubs are leveraging their position to ultimately perhaps get more money from UEFA and maybe FIFA in the club um, World Cup um, element to things that they're planning was if you go away and break away, um, be very careful what you wish for because your players might not be able to uh, play in UEFA and FIFA sanctions national um, tournaments and um you know, again, we only have to look back to 1992 and the Premier League breaking away from the Football League 
Um, you know, it's not that long ago since everybody just accepts the Premier League as the status quo now. But, you know, the best part of, um, you know, 30 years ago, that certainly wasn't the case. Um, so kind of, it's, a, it's a preemptive strike in a way, isn't it? Because they, um, I, I suspect if the Super League did break away and you had these players playing in um, in a Super League and they weren't allowed to play in a, in a World Cup or a Champions League and so on, the World Cup and Champions League are not going to be attractive propositions because they're just not going to have the best players. So actually, you know, it's, it's FIFA and UEFA coming forward and, and really going, we're calling chicken, I guess, in a way, because that they could certainly not live with um, with those players not being in their, in their competitions. And also, if I can just mention one point yeah. as well, which is the other dynamic, which I know we've talked about previously, is, you know, what, what, are, what are the clubs actually talking about when they talk about um, a breakaway Super League? Are they talking about a breakaway European Super League breaking away from the UEFA Champions League and Europa League, wherever else it might be? Because it seems like that is what's on the table more than a break, a substantive breakaway from all domestic competition. So in a way, um, and there's obviously a few nuances in that, but it doesn't seem that it's like, okay, Liverpool and others, and then Juventus and others and Barcelona and others and Munich and others, wherever else it might be, are not going to play domestic competition anymore. It mm. is what are, what are the opportunities during the um, the windows that are currently, I guess, reserved for UCL matches to be able to then um, to, to be able to come up with something more lucrative. And then, as we talked about last time, that groundswell towards are there more game week opportunities to be able to then sell more of the bigger premium games midweek because of the uh, the way that the fixtures are, are scheduled throughout the international calendar? Yeah, so you're absolutely right that this latest positioning does seem to be you know, a replacement for the Champions League. And we've seen, as you said, you know, an angling for greater revenues, greater access spots. So you know, a really simple illustration of... Um, the I guess strength of the big leagues and the big clubs in the big leagues is that the Premier League now has four guaranteed group stage um, slots in the Champions League. That it used to be one qualifier, which placed a little bit of jeopardy, uh, and English teams did lose that game. And it used to be obviously three and then and, and two before that. Um, so they've, they've kind of uh, well increased their position, and that's through in part having that threat of a breakaway league. But I think the the key aspects of having potential European Super League and domestic leagues is that this element of relegation and needing to qualify for the Super League. And, and certainly the reports that, that emerged over the last, uh, you know, last couple of days or so suggest that there would, these there would be these teams that essentially had permanent positions within, within the Super League. So they don't have to worry about losing games again, relegated and having to re-qualify for the Super League. If there was a re-qualification process, it'd be through the league. But if they don't have to worry about the league, then they, the league is in many ways glorified friendlies. Yeah. Um, you know, it's playing, it's Man United come to Burnley this week and Burnley get get to see, you know, kind of the Holland Globetrotters or whatever. So that's, I think, how, you know, a, a cynical perspective on it would be, would be that, you know, if you lock your position in that league, then essentially the league just becomes almost like um, a bit of additional narrative during the season to add a bit of kind of diversity from potentially these big teams actually losing games on a much more regular basis than they do today. Can I ask one bit there, which I which I find interesting, just sparked off a, a thought that I had based on a podcast I was listening to, which was, you know, um, 
I know we take Liverpool as examples and uh, maybe sort of conscious or uh, subconscious bias, unconscious bias um, or otherwise or example led. But, you know, I, I thought, you know, when when um, you break things down into maybe more monetary value and opportunity cost and you're looking at Liverpool over the last six, six five, six years and a clock uh, where they haven't prioritised the FA Cup, for example, I presume it's not because of the that no one wants doesn't want the glory of their fit cup, but the opportunity cost of going out early um, versus the opportunity cost of uh, the value that attracts to winning the FA Cup, which is very small. It's almost one and a half places of a uh, in the in yeah. the Premier League effectively. Whether that then leads on to uh, the same type of narrative and explanation of if there is a, a semi-closed Champions League. And, and the riches are very much in there. Query, we can talk about competitive balance in a second. But the actual issue then becomes, is that the priority for all of those teams that are permanent members becomes the the, 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 the Super League, as you said, not the domestic league, even if the domestic league is still very, quite valuable. It's very valuable to everyone else in the league who isn't in the Super League. But for those that are in the Super League, you know, ultimately their, their position's entrenched and that, that becomes less of an issue. Yeah, exactly. It's just, yeah, you're right. It becomes, you wonder what would happen to the FA Cup in that scenario because it becomes an even lesser competition, right? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that's um, that's kind of natural um, extension of, uh, of what's being discussed here. Um, I think going back to um, going back to the kind of FIFA UEFA statement that, that came out, um, we were discussing pre-show and I, you said it was interesting to you. I, I think it's interesting to anyone, the idea of this kind of antitrust competition law mm-hmm. around can a governing body say you're not allowed in to play in our competitions on essentially a a non-sporting issue if you like so what what is what are the grounds that FIFA UEFA have there what precedent is there for for this yeah I mean um I promised on the tweet just before we started I wasn't going to talk competition law too much and I'm going to try and stick to that um promise before the viewers go down even uh even more so but um there was a recent um, speed skating case, more or less, where um, participants of the actual um, league, or rather the competition, the uh, governing body, more or less were banned from wanting to participate in a rival competition. Um, and that went all the way to the, the Court of Justice, who actually ruled in the speed skaters' favour. Um, the issue, therefore, being is that in exactly the same way, FIFA and UEFA are effectively the gatekeepers. They are the the regulators, but they're also the competition organisers. Mm-hmm. There is an inherent conflict in that. And if, for example, there aren't pretty inherent and strong reasons and objectives why um, the that they would have to or should be enforcing a ban on particular club or rather the players from not participating in national team competition, um, then you know, there's there's an inherent risk that those types of behaviours could at least on face value be seen as attracting anti uh, antitrust um, gazes f- f- for sure. Now, whether there's enough justification or different justifications, it's, it's one thing. The slight nuances here is we're talking about the players of a team not being able to play a national competition, whereas in the speed skaters, in the ice skating issue, what we're talking about was their ability to not to be able to 
game, you know, not to be able to work whatsoever because they were banned from um, the alternative competition. So um, it's something that's actually cropped up. And I made a couple of retweets last week from some um, really great analysis from a few professors um, that were speaking about those types of parallels. So I think the one thing to bear in mind is, you know, FIFA UEFA as the regulator and also as the competition organizer, if they are the gatekeepers in, um, you've got to think very hard. They've got to think very hard about what they are doing to ensure sanctity of competition, integrity, um, those types of issues. Bearing in mind um, the ramifications if that if that thing happened. Now, I think in practice we probably understand that this is probably FIFA and UEFA and the confederations. This is one of their biggest trump cards to be able to play by way of leverage. Just as in the inverse, the opposite position. The biggest trump cards for the clubs to play is we're going to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you almost have this mirroring of position, I guess, from a negotiation position, which is here are where here's where we stand. Here are our biggest positions, and now we come together at some point to be able to do that. Because, like you talked about, the first thing you talked about today, um, it's not like these discussions haven't happened before. Um, it's not like clubs are generally um, profit making have been in the long term anyway, take away FFP and those better trajectories recently. So clubs are always looking and have done look for greater ways to ensure more stable revenues. And that's what this is all about. Uh, JP Morgan possibly offering reported 300 million pounds per team. Um, to be able to cushion that Champions League fall potentially, and that's obviously not to be stiff not lightly. Yeah, no, it's 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 fascinating, really, what the dynamics of play out. I, I remember in cricket, players who played in the Indian Cricket League, the ICL, were banned from playing in the Indian Premier League, the IPL, which was kind of the officially sanctioned tournament, and and were kind of yeah, outcast from cricket for a period of time, and uh, and obviously lost out on on income and so on. Um, happened with Kerry Packer series in the, in the 70s and 80s as well. Um, but I think, you know, you've got these institutions that have been part of the game. You know, FIFA is, what, 107 years old, something like that. Um, that, you know, there are going to be upstarts. There are going to be these um, new organisations and, and they shouldn't, you know, there's, there's certainly a line of argument to suggest that they shouldn't just be, you know, kind of pushed to one side or squashed away um, just because they're, they're upstarts. Uh, just been a question from Philip Draper, which um, keen to get your thoughts, Dan. So on on the question of potential employment disputes, if you know domestic clubs are the employers of the players, not the national governing body. So if a player wants to participate in the World Cup but is being forced to play in the Super League, I mean, is that a realist? Is that something that could happen, and you end up with with these very awkward scenarios for for clubs and players? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the nuclear option, isn't it? In the end, you're talking about an extreme situation potentially um, occurring. Um, And it's not to say it couldn't happen, but I just still think it's very unlikely. But I I like the example, which is what happens if you're playing for a a team that joins the Super League and therefore you're suddenly potentially at least disqualified from playing for your national team in what could potentially be the highlight of your career at a Euros or a yeah. um, uh, or um, a World Cup or whatever else it might be. So, 
no, I, I, I can completely see it. I, I think there's a lot more nuance to be had in a journey into that position. I almost think that would be the case if everything breaks down mm-hmm. and there isn't that that solution to be found. But I, I would, I'd be highly doubtful if that um, if that situation occurs. Yeah, and pretty much every thing that you see about the football ecosystem today is almost a circumstance of um, compromise in some mm-hmm. way between. Uh, organizations um and you so the champs league being a good one in the sense that actually the swiss model that's being discussed from the year 2024 around having more group matches and so on is to a degree a compromise around around the super league issue because it's giving you know european teams like juve and, and real madrid and so on more european games uh whilst not you know giving them the kind of fully fledged um super league uh, and so you, you're absolutely right. The, the kind of what Philips outlined is, is a nuclear option, uh, and so it is still the, probably not the likely option because we've never really seen that in football. Um, because I don't think anyone wants the no one was almost no one wants a leap into the unknown in some ways as to you know what could happen there. And in many ways, football is working for the teams at the top. It's not it's not broken. They might have frustrations about it. So. You know, almost be careful what you wish wish for in some ways. And I know that there's other areas perhaps we can talk on talk about in other weeks around you know, the abolition of transfer fees or mm-hmm. issues like that that would completely change the the business of the sport. Um, you could argue Bosman did that to a degree, but but some of these that we're discussing here would be, you know, really kind of as they said, black swan because you know <laughs> they're, they're all we can see them ahead of us, but they're, they're those kind of seismic events that really shake um, shake up the sport. Can I ask just um, a question on something on or a slightly um, aligned point, um, Omar, which was um, obviously as as the bigger teams get bigger, w- one of the one of the issues a while back when at least the Premier League was changing its rules on different broadcasting models um, um, and distributions was that. The, the benefit of a more egalitarian system domestically at least and and i guess um on a um on a european competition basis was that then competitive balance improves that then you're going to have greater instability of r- result um, that you're going to have uns- more unstable results as a positive you're going to then see um greater uncertainty of uh, of position to a degree or at least you're going to have times when um, lower teams in the league are going to beat the, the better teams in the league, even if it might well be that between two and four teams are more likely than not to win the league. I, I'm not, I, remember, I think I remember you, you guys at 21st Club um, writing a piece at some point, and I don't want to put you on the spot too much, just about how that stratification to a degree of when Champions League monies reach, at that, reach that top level, that actually then it... Um, um, effectively deteriorates competitive balance at the the national level and whether then in effect i think one of the arguments that fifa and uefa might be able to run quite well is that competitive balance point that uncertainty of outcome that needing to have strong competitors becomes quite a strong argument to be able to say um, you can't just have all of these breakaway leagues where all the big clubs are going to hoover up a decent or a vast majority of the money, amount of the money, simply because then everyone else is left behind. And in the end, what you want is more clubs competing and are stronger, which then leads to a better product in any event. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's 
the whole issue of competitive balance, that's the almost delicacy of the, the ecosystem at the moment. And that's where you could argue it's broken. Because I think one of the big things that UEFA have on the front of their minds at the moment is um, the effect that their money is having on the domestic leagues. And I know Seraphin's spoken before around, um, you know, the distortive effect of the example I always think of is Ludogorets in, in Bulgaria. They qualify, well, they, they invest in their squad, they qualify for the Champions League, they reach the group stages. That's a huge sum of cash for a Bulgarian club. So they go back into the Bulgarian league, got way more money than everyone else, buy some Brazilians and other players, win the league again, Champions League again, and so on. You have this kind of perpetuating effect. Um, and so that's caused issues. And that's why you have the Euro uh, Europa Conference League, which is starting uh, in next season, actually. Yeah, so um, that's designed to kind of give clubs, you know, an opportunity to play group stage European football, receive a bit more money, kind of smooth, smooth the effects within countries a little bit more. Um, but we, you know, you could argue to a degree we've seen this accelerating effect of, of UEFA money probably in the last 15, 20 years where we get the same qualifiers from uh, England, Germany, or particularly England, Spain, um, Italy to a degree. Uh, and these clubs are kind of are pulling away to a degree. And that, I don't think it's undermined competitive balance to to the extent that their domestic leagues become unattractive because the Premier League's also been really good at, at distributing its um, its money equally. Uh, but if you ended up in a situation where they're in a in a breakaway Super League, then they would essentially be attracting all of the fans in world football because those would be the games everyone wants to watch. Well, certainly that's the assumption that that they're making, um, and that would obviously bring in bring in the TV money. So, yes. That they would need to think about competitive balance within their own league, but that would certainly have huge repercussions for the rest of rest of football and balance across European football. And one of the things that we've talked about previously as well, which just sort of came to mind, which was, you know, at some point, I was really interested, Guardiola came up with some um, comments at the weekend about possibly needing less domestic games. And I wonder whether it fitted into the elite club narrative actually very nicely in a way, which was, we need less games we don't need the league cup we don't want fa cup replays we want fewer domestic games presumably because they want because the top teams want to play each other more often um i presume it's not because they're going to get more breaks they want more windows to be able to play particular matches but also on the flip side is that you know you've got the i was trying to pronounce it right the, the club world cup the fifa club world cup that's possibly being well supposed to happen in china i think it was obviously not and whenever that might happen again mm which then means almost for every summer period now, never mind in season, is that the, the, the period by which players are going to have breaks and the period by which recovery in season and out season just seems to get squashed mm. and, and reduced every, every year because every stakeholder, if it's UEFA, if it's FIFA, if it's the ECA and if it's um, the Super breakaway clubs if it's the domestic league if it's the cup competitions everybody's scrambling for their piece of the, the calendar and it just seems that that's going to become more of a more of an important issue as the seasons go on yeah this is this is where you'd argue maybe the american sports model works well because it's got a lot more of a kind of collaborative uh, approach and obviously you know it's often described as you know the most socialist leagues in, in the world in, in the way that they uh, you know, have um, kind of capital salaries and the way that they distribute players and all that, all that kind of stuff. And but they, I think, by and large, with with some exceptions from from what I understand, not a huge kind of follow of American sports, but by and large, 
yeah, it's all about growing the collective pie and making sure that the collective ecosystem works so that, you know, high school football ladders up to college football ladders up to the NFL. Uh, I was reading an interesting piece in The Economist um, the other week around uh, potentially in the uh, Major League Baseball and the minor leagues actually having a few issues in terms of their yeah. um, compatibility and and, uh, and the makeup of the system there. Um, but within football, we've got a much more competitive landscape. So we've got, you know, historically leagues clashing with each other, confederations class, clashing with each other, UEFA and FIFA clashing with each other. Everyone, as you say, is scrambling for their, for their piece of the pie in many ways. And I think it's all well and good for me to say everyone needs to take a collaborative approach because actually it's just not feasible because if, you know, if it's a bit of a zero sum game, then, then those in the leading positions aren't going to want to give up. Um, some of what they um, what they have today, so yeah, it's it, uh, you can see where we've why we've got to where we've got to today. It's kind of it's it's just impossible to reverse reverse the car now, which is um, a shame in many ways because I think you could you you know if you're designing football 100 years ago, you could have come up with a system that ensured every yeah this kind of global pyramid that laddered up and everyone had a pathway through the top and fans could support clubs at different levels and all that kind of thing. But now we've got a slightly more kind of Jenga tower of football, if you like. No, it's true. Um, Ian's asked quite an interesting question there, Omar. Maybe yeah. it's, we were actually talking about Trent beforehand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I know it's slightly off off uh, tar- target to a degree, but it's based on the same type of premise of you know rested recuperation and other otherwise of football clubs that players would be physically shot. I don't mean they, I don't think he means that. <laughs> be quite harsh if we get a bad performance um but you have no pre-season and struggling to recover their form i read a great piece in the athletic about sort of trent struggles to a degree this season mm-hmm. um fabino obviously coming into the back four change of partners on that right hand side um having to cover in more and not being um uh, you know adventurous going forward um him having covid not having pre-season etc obviously certain tactical nuances as well within all of that as well but um do you, do you think this whole player welfare element is going to you know Klopp's talked about it for a while and a lot of other managers Guardiola and otherwise mm-hmm. bearing in mind though that their jobs are sometimes at risk that the managers by playing or not playing you know ultimately they want to play their best players you know how how does that stakeholder uh, element come into the the bigger pie yeah, I do. I do feel for players um, because they are often treated as the, the kind of performing monkeys in many ways, um, and a bit of an afterthought. I think in a in the way that the position we've reached to where we are today in many ways, because you know all the different competitions that, that come up. You just look at this season. You know, no, nothing gave in the calendar, so the players being asked to, to play a lot of games and the squad. You know, clubs' budgets are squeezed, so the squad sizes are certainly not bigger, smaller of anything. Um, so yeah, I, I think the the examples of Trent and Kai Havertz are, are good ones in terms of you know players being being tired. But I do think you know in that Super League example, what I mentioned earlier around the domestic leagues, what you have is those domestic leagues being just rotation game. You know, the same way that we see the EFL Cup and FA Cup today, with where players are rotated. I think that'd just be the domestic league reality. So actually, you might end up those players actually might end up in in a better position, assuming the 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 kind of money is sufficient at the top end of the game um but but you never know Club, clubs will want to win everything want to want to seal every bit of revenue that they can get so um yeah it's it, as ever the the players are a little bit of an afterthought and i um yeah i, I feel for them in, in that respect particularly if there's conversations around salary caps which is one of the big 
potential motivators of the Super League is that you have your own regulatory environment. Owners can cap the salaries of the players at, mm. at a probably higher level than what they've got today. But because the revenues would be even higher, they you know they're they're not so they're not loss making entities for for as much as they are today. So yeah, they, they there is potential for for playing body representatives, you know PFA, FIFA Pro, um, to to want to have a big say in all this. I read very briefly that um, that one of the, the the proposals was to cap wages at fifty five percent of revenue, um, which is quite an interesting one because at the moment there aren't too many Premier League clubs that are of that. But I agree that if, for example, those top clubs are more or less tripling their European revenues, mm-hmm. um, that obviously gives a lot more of a buffer to bring those wages down as a percentage of the overall pie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in some cases, they wouldn't even need, or well, they wouldn't be able to raise their their wages. They could hold their hands up and go, "Oh, stop. the rules rules say it can't be more than fifty five percent." So, if I increase your wage, Messi, then I have to decrease you know, player X and lower down the squad. So, uh, and that's you know, again, we spoke about the American model. That's the kind of attraction of the American model because as an owner, you don't have to keep putting money into the into the club in order to cover cover the player wages or borrow money in order to cover it and you know, having having a soft wage cap enables you to do that. Although, again, there's competitive balance implications of that because if you're only able to raise your wages to a certain level, I think there's some kind of mooted rule around um, that you could have your wages at 55% or 27.5% of the of the wealthiest club, which feels a bit, you know, finger in the air um, approach. But you can see how these rules might get kind of concocted in order to have some nod to, to competitive balance and allow, allow some teams to invest. At the same time that we've seen the championship EFL clubs reject an £18 million yeah. hard salary cap um, for going back to the table, possibly for something as a percentage of revenues that they are more want, look, looking to uh, fall in line with. So I'm just always, I love to see these interlinkages between <laughs> on one side championship to the other side, Premier League and Super League, and then everything in between really is just sort of connecting those dots. Yeah, exactly, and I think um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot. Of leagues are trying to take from each other and learn from each other, but again, the competitive environment means that you end up some teams happy, some teams unhappy, some leagues happy, some leagues unhappy, and ultimately, uh, yeah, the 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 money money talks. Omar, we're at half past again. No, indeed, no, it's really interesting. I uh, I think it's a fascinating topic. As you say, I'm not sure we'll end up nuclear nuclear option, but uh, but it's going to rumble rumble on. I think. Great to chat as always, mate. Nice one. All right, mate. I'll see you next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast. Like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Dundee an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. 
please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.